Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics so that defenders can pick and choose what they want to listen to without having to commit to an hour-long podcast with guests and entertaining banter. This not only saves you time, but also relieves me of the pressure of trying to be entertaining. This podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial insofar as the ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is, of course, an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interests of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. I am Daryl Johnson of the Air Force's Defense Counsel Assistance Program, and it's 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region. Please join me as I pour myself a drink to relax, sit down, and share some thoughts on defensive litigation and advocacy. This week, I'm going to speak very briefly to opening statements. But before we get to that, I want to mention the case of United States v. Kennedy, which is an unpublished opinion from the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals that was decided on 1 November 2021. I want to talk about United States v. Kennedy primarily because while I was reading it, I had an epiphany, and I realized I have given some bad advice to at least two trial teams. So this week's episode is a mea culpa, where I hope to walk back my advice regarding the wisdom and ability of defense counsel to delay bringing a motion to dismiss for failure to allege an offense until after findings. This story begins in Europe in 2018. The findings portion of a court's martial had just concluded, and the members had returned a finding of guilty. The defense counsel, who were, by the way, awesome, requested an Article 39A session where they made a motion to dismiss the specification for failure to allege an offense. The military judge was furious. She demanded written submissions, and I believe the word contempt was thrown around. The military judge saw the timing of the motion as being a violation of her scheduling order and, perhaps implicating candor to the tribunal insofar as the defense knew the specification was defective, but allowed the court to proceed all the way through findings as if it was not. This sent ripples of concern through the judiciary and generated a lot of discussion. And here comes my mea culpa. I sided with the court. And since then, I've advised at least two trial teams that they should file their motion to dismiss for failure to allege an offense prior to arraignment. My logic was not grounded in the military judge's scheduling order, because I do not believe a military judge may order a defense counsel to take action that is contrary to the best interests of the client unless the action is independently required by law or professional standards. For instance, the court could not demand that the defense reveal whether the client is going to testify. That is a decision the client must make, and the client will normally reserve making that decision until they've had a chance to see the whole of the government's case-in-chief. So a scheduling order that required the defense to declare whether the client was going to testify in advance of trial would not be valid. So although I felt the scheduling order alone was not enough, I did think that a failure to allege an offense was jurisdictional. Therefore, in my mind, Professional Rule of Responsibility 3.3, which is candor to the tribunal, required the defense to disclose that the court lacked jurisdiction over the offense. What I recently learned, however, is that the president has declared an accused may waive a failure to allege an offense motion. As you know, an accused may not waive subject matter jurisdiction, so this strongly implies that the fact that the specification does not allege an actual offense under the UCMJ is not a jurisdictional defect. 
Because I came to this change in the rules so late, I thought I would use this opportunity to talk it through. To start off, what is a motion to dismiss for failure to allege an offense? You would think that would be a simple question with one answer, but it is not always that simple. For instance, in United States v. Kennedy, the appellant challenged his guilty plea because the specification in charge alleged a violation of 109, which addresses destruction of non-military property, but the facts alleged in the specification, as well as the facts elicited through the care inquiry, established that the property damaged was in fact military property, and therefore should have been charged as a violation of 108. The Air Force Court characterized the appellant's claim as a failure to allege an offense, even though the appellant didn't characterize it as such, and clearly conceded that the specification did allege an offense, he simply argued it was the wrong offense. In my view, the Air Force Court was wrong, but that error is not uncommon. We often see people asserting that the specification fails to allege an offense when what they really mean is that the specification fails to accurately capture the criminal conduct alleged. While reading the Kennedy opinion, I thought it was odd that the court characterized the appellant's assertion that his plea was improvident as a failure to allege an offense claim, especially because, as I stated, the specification clearly alleged an offense. The reason, it appears, was to ease disposition of the issue because the court cited to the Rule for Courts Martial 907B2E, which appears to assert that failure to raise a motion for failure to allege an offense is waived if it is not brought prior to adjournment of the court-martial. That subparagraph is a new rule that was adopted as part of the 2016 amendments to the RCMs. In my view, the Air Force Court got this wrong because the appellant did not raise a failure to allege an offense claim. Indeed, I actually had a chance to read the briefs on this one, and the government didn't think that this was an issue either. The Air Force Court seems to have sua sponte characterized it this way simply so that it could say the issue was waived and would not have to address whether the appellant's plea was improvident because he pled guilty to the wrong offense. But that is not what interests me about this case. What interested me was that I was not aware of the change. Somehow, I had missed the fact that the president amended the RCMs to try and impose waiver on these types of claims. It is important to know that prior to that change, the rules clearly allowed a motion for failure to allege an offense to be brought at any time, including being raised for the first time on appeal. So this was a pretty significant change, which I had missed. But now that I'm fully aware, let's discuss. Let's start with further exploring what amounts to a failure to allege an offense. The most common defect, and the most proper one, is that the government has failed to allege an element of the offense. Rule for Courts Martial 307C3 states that a specification is sufficient if it alleges every element of the charged offense. It qualifies that somewhat by stating that the elements may be alleged expressly or by necessary implication, but the CAF has been reluctant to rely on necessary implication. Indeed, in one of the most significant cases on this point, United States v. Fosler, it found that the terminal element in Article 134 was not necessarily implicated even though Article 134 was cited and trial practitioners for years had been omitting the terminal element from the specification, while nevertheless including the requirement that the members find the conduct was prejudicial to good order and discipline or of a nature to discredit the armed forces in the members' instructions. Regardless, the CAF found that the specification did not allege an offense because it failed to specifically include the terminal element. That is, an allegation that the conduct was prejudicial to good order and discipline, or was service discrediting. 
The requirement that a specification clearly allege every element of the offense is rooted in the Sixth Amendment, which demands that an accused be informed of the nature and cause of the accusations against him. So if we stop right here in the discussion, one might conclude that a naked recitation of the elements should satisfy the requirement. For instance, for an assault consummated by a battery, the specification could read that Daryl did unlawfully and with force or violence do bodily harm to Clyde. That captures all three elements, bodily harm, done unlawfully, and with force or violence. The problem is that it doesn't actually tell me, the accused, anything about what the government actually believes I did or what they intend to prove at trial. In this way, specifications also implicate the due process and double jeopardy clauses in the Fifth Amendment, because the specification must provide the accused with enough information that he may adequately prepare his defense and to protect him against a second trial alleging what is essentially the same violation. So now at this point, we can see three types of motions to dismiss. Where the government failed to allege an element of the offense. Where the government failed to allege the facts that it intends to prove that will meet the elements of the offense. And three, where the facts alleged in the offense, as a matter of law, do not satisfy the elements of the offense. All three of these are generally referred to as a motion to dismiss for failure to allege an offense, which can be confusing because the second one does allege an offense, it just falls short of the notice and specificity requirements demanded by the Fifth Amendment. So there we have a quick summary of what a motion to dismiss for failure to allege an offense is, so when can you bring it? Here, the rules for courts martial are now in conflict. RCM 905b2 states that any motion based on defects in the specifications must be raised before trial, but then specifically excludes jurisdictional issues and failure to allege an offense. RCM 905E2 goes further by stating that jurisdictional motions, or motions alleging a failure to state an offense, can be raised even after the court-martial is adjourned. However, in RCM 907, as we discussed, The president states that failure to allege an offense is a waivable motion and implies failure to to raise it prior to final adjournment would amount to waiver. So the rules are in conflict. Despite that conflict, the Air Force Court in United States v. Kennedy, as we discussed, refused to entertain the failure to allege an offense claim based on RCM 907b2e. Again, I would note that the appellant did not assert failure to allege an offense, He complained he pled guilty to the wrong offense, but that is not how the court characterized it, and then it refused to address it at all. Okay, so now we know that the RCMs assert, one, that a specification that fails to allege an offense is not a jurisdictional defect, two, that an accused may waive the defense that the specification failed to allege an offense, and three, we know that if the accused wishes to assert the defense, the motion may be made any time prior to adjournment. In my mind, this has important implications. First, an affirmative waiver should be knowing, meaning that the accused should be fully apprised of the information necessary to best determine whether the waiver is in his or her best interest. Second, if it is not jurisdictional, there is no candor issue when entering pleas or allowing the court to proceed over the specification because apparently the court has jurisdiction even when the specification does not allege a crime under the UCMJ. This leads me to conclude that I was wrong when I advised counsel that they should inform the court prior to arraignment that a specification fails to allege an offense. 
Counsel will want to consider the facts and circumstances of their case and advise their clients accordingly. It may be that defects in the charging will increase the chances of a finding of not guilty. So perhaps you want to proceed as is. Or perhaps the government's case is weak, and you may want to wait and see if the members return a verdict of not guilty on the defective specification. Then, if things go south and your client is convicted, the client will likely decide, at that time, not to waive the defense, and you will bring your motion to dismiss for failure to allege an offense. I do not believe a judge's scheduling order can deprive your client of the right to assert a lawful defense within the timeline permitted under the rules for courts-martial. When advising your client regarding whether to assert the defense of failure to allege an offense prior to arraignment or waiting until after a finding is returned, you will want to review the case of United States v. Turner, 79 MJ 401, which is a CAF case from 2020. There, the accused did just what we have been discussing. He waited until the members returned a finding of guilty before raising his motion to dismiss for failure to allege an offense. The motion was denied, and on appeal, the CAF specifically noted that when a motion is brought after findings have been returned, the standard for review is going to be more favorable to the government, and it will require, quote, a clear showing of substantial prejudice to the accused. So the strategy of waiting until after findings may reduce your chances of success on the motion. Before I move on, I want to briefly make a case, or an argument, that a specification that fails to allege an offense is, in fact, a jurisdictional issue. In my view, this would apply in two of the three situations I previously mentioned, specifically where the government failed to allege an element of the offense, or where the government alleged facts that, as a matter of law, do not satisfy the elements of the offense. In both cases, a finding of guilty on the specification is not a finding of guilty as to a UCMJ offense, because either no offense was alleged, or the alleged facts do not meet the elements of the offense. Either way, a finding that the specification is accurate beyond a reasonable doubt is not a finding that your client is guilty of the offense. In my view, this is why, prior to 2016, a motion to dismiss for failure to allege an offense could be raised at any time. That is, because the defect speaks to the validity of the conviction itself. So how can a court-martial have subject matter jurisdiction over an allegation that doesn't amount to a crime? Courts-martial are courts of limited jurisdiction. Articles 18, 19, and 20 of the UCMJ set out the jurisdiction of general, special, and summary courts-martial, respectively. Each are limited to trying persons only for offenses made punishable under the UCMJ. If a specification fails to allege an offense under the UCMJ, then pursuant to the statute, the court-martial has no jurisdiction. This seems fundamental to me, and I'm surprised that the rules have made this an issue. But they have, and it's your job to take advantage of it. In the end, this may ultimately be more of an issue for our appellate brethren, as they attempt to breathe life into a failure to allege an offense claim that was never brought at trial. For our trial practitioners, what you need to focus on is how the specification is defective, how those defects impact your ability to defend the specification, and the risks and benefits of allowing the case to proceed on the defective specification. That sums up my discussion on a motion to dismiss for failure to allege an offense. Feel free to reach out if you wish to discuss or if you have any questions or just want to yell at me for giving bad advice in the past. But now let's turn to our advocacy portion of the podcast, where today we will talk about opening statements. You may have heard that a case is won or lost in opening statement, or that 90% of the members make up their mind based on the opening statement. I have never really bought into these broad assertions. 
I would like to think that the members take their job seriously and are looking forward to taking evidence before making any conclusions. However, I do believe that opening is your opportunity to orient the members to the case in a way that leaves them predisposed to your theme and theory of the case. At one of our recent circuit advocacy trainings, I heard an expert forensic psychologist discuss the power of the opening statement by discussing how we, as humans, are reluctant to let go of our conclusions. In other words, if your opening statement makes sense, if it tells a story that the members can relate to so that it feels true, they will be primed to accept your theme and the government will have difficulty moving them away from it. Of course, to do that effectively, your theme must be closely aligned with the facts that you anticipate will be elicited throughout the trial. Your theme must be consistent with the evidence, good and bad, and that can be tricky. You should be thinking about your theme early and continue to assess and attack it as you prepare for trial. In my experience, the best themes jump out at you from the evidence because they point to reasonable alternatives other than guilt. They scream, reasonable doubt, but those are the easy cases meaning that those are the cases where finding your theme is easy. I do not mean those cases are actually easy. In fact, they are often the most difficult because there is nothing more stressful than representing an innocent client. We want wins in every case, but seeing an innocent person convicted at court-martial can be really devastating. But anyway, back to opening statement. And to make this memorable, I will stick with the rule of three and recommend that you keep three things in mind when drafting your opening statement. A strong ho-hum zinger, telling an engaging story, and having an exit strategy. Let's discuss. A strong ho-hum zinger. You are likely thinking, I am far too into my happy hour, but let me give you some background. A hundred years ago, I was a recruiter for the Air National Guard, and part of the rite of passage for being a recruiter is going through the Air Force's recruiter school at Lackland Air Force Base. It was a pretty intense sales course that really helped me morph from a severe introvert into someone who could at least engage with strangers and practice active listening. Part of the course was on making speeches, and they introduced me to the concept of the ho-hum zinger. What that means is that you have an audience who all expect you to give a speech. They are prepared, but are likely not enthusiastic. Think high school kids in an auditorium compelled to listen to the recruiter tell them why they should leave their families and friends to go get their heads shaved at basic training. The first words out of your mouth need to snap that crowd out of their ho-hum expectations and provide a zinger that grabs their attention. They should all be thinking something along the lines of, why bring that up? They are now engaged. They want to know what you are going to say next because you surprised them. You didn't shock them. You're not over the top. You simply drew them in by saying something interesting or unexpected. It is not easy to give examples of this because it really depends on your case. But you know your case backward and forward. You need to look for that for the fulcrum that will shift the case to your theme or at least some significant fact that will play a role in the finding of not guilty. And then you lead with that. You may not explain it right away. You may leave that ho-hum zinger hanging out there for a bit. And let folks wonder, when is this guy going to explain himself? It may not be until your exit strategy. But the first words out of your mouth should create intrigue for the members. It could be a quote from an anticipated witness or simply a statement of motive on the part of the complainant. But it needs to be relatable and closely linked to the anticipated facts. For instance, in a spousal sex assault allegation made during a divorce, you might start off with, what wouldn't a parent do to keep custody of their children? 
or in a drunken sex case, you might say, the only cure for a hangover is time. The cure for regret is blame. Obviously, these are just made up and would need to fit the facts of the case. But what I hope I'm conveying is that they should sound like there's a story behind them. They grab your attention because you want to know, what do you mean by that? The panel is listening. I'm going to break from this for a moment because at TDAC, we often teach that the first words out of your mouth should be about your client, introducing him so that you show there is a bond between the two of you, humanizing him so that he isn't just the accused, and maybe even garnering some sympathy for a kid trying to defend himself against the almighty government. I believe all that is true, but maybe you should work that in at voir dire. The judge may not allow it, but at least get in an introduction of your client. After all, that is why they're here. Or perhaps you can work in humanizing of your client during your opening statement itself, when the focus of the anticipated testimony or the, the narrative of your story turns to your client and you say something along the lines of, that is when Airman First Class Jerry Combs, my client, first met Airman Davis. At the time, Airman Combs was a plumber in the Civil Engineering Squadron. He'd only worked there a couple of months and was new to Travis Air Force Base. Indeed, he was new to the Air Force. This was his first base. I hadn't met him yet, but it is my honor and privilege to re represent him here today. When he met Airman Davis, she was friendly and helpful, and they became friends. And on you go from there. And while you were doing that, while you spoke of your client, you would have walked to the defense table, maybe put your hand on your client's shoulder. You connected. And then you went on with your story. Which brings me to the second point. Have an engaging story. Obviously, every case is different, but you need to figure out a way to lay out the anticipated testimony and evidence in a way that is engaging, easy to understand, and leads to a not guilty verdict, if possible. It doesn't have to be a lengthy story. Sometimes it will be very short, but it needs to tell a story that feels true. The characters need to behave in ways that we expect, or we need a reason for them to behave in ways that we do not expect. The evidence must not conflict with the narrative. Like almost everything, this is much easier said than done. One exercise that I did at a litigation course that I thought was helpful was to storyboard the defense case, to take one or more of the more plausible alternatives to guilt and draw out six frames that told the story. We then told that story in chronological order using the frames as a guide. We were then forced to rearrange the frames and tell the story in a different order. What many people found, including me, was that the story was much more compelling when we started at the end, or in the middle, perhaps starting with the most dramatic moment and then explain how we got there and where it went from there. The point is to not lock yourself into a chronological telling of the story. Practice telling your case's story in several different ways. Play with the evidence to decide how much you will need to include or what you can leave out because the omitted evidence will not impact the overall narrative one way or the other, or at least not impacted enough to care in your opening statement. When I used to do this, I preferred thinking of my case's story in chapters, and I would practice one chapter at a time. This made it easier to adjust or reorganize as we got closer to trial. Also, new attorneys often feel that they must introduce every witness and describe their anticipated testimony. That often comes across as boring and hard to follow. Names are hard to remember, and the panel doesn't need to know them in opening. 
Oftentimes, it is the relationship that will imprint on the members, and it is often the relationship that makes the testimony powerful. Consider referring to the characters by the role they play rather than worrying about their rank and name. As much as possible, the opening statement should sound like you are just telling a story, speaking naturally and engaging with everyone on the panel. You are not walking them through the court-martial. You are providing a story that will be illuminated with the evidence to follow. You are anchoring them to your theme without ever having to say so. Rarely will you need to say, and the testimony will show, or Aaron Bunch will tell you, or whatever. You can just tell the story. When putting the words in the mouth of a witness is helpful to your story, you should obviously do that. But otherwise, just tell the story. If the government objects, you can easily throw in a reference to the source of the evidence, or even broadly state, The witnesses will tell you how Airman Combs met Airman Davis. They first met in her office when Airman Combs was in processing into the base. She was pleasant and blah, blah, blah. Try not to think of talking to a jury, but rather just telling a story to your spouse or a friend or someone in a bar. How would you tell this story to get them to understand the evidence and still believe your ending? That your client is not guilty of the offense. Which brings me to the final point and that is to know when to stop. This may sound obvious, but sometimes when you are telling a compelling story, and you really want the members to believe you, and you want them to vote not guilty really bad, you just feel like you need to keep talking. To explain all the facts that don't fit your narrative, but weren't important enough to address in the story. You need to have a plan. Know when to stop, and how you plan to do it. Maybe you will loop back to your ho-hum zinger. Maybe you will take it back to your client and the faith he is putting in them to fulfill their duty. Maybe you hand it off to the judge by explaining that the instructions will come at the close of the case and how they will mandate a finding of not guilty. Who knows? But you need to have a plan, and it should fit within your opening. Otherwise, you will risk an awkward trailing off that detracts from all your hard work. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away And will you please say hello to the friends that I know